The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in Luke 13 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's really no problem. We do have them up front, but all the verses will be on the front. If you do have any questions, what we do here as a church, one of the things we do is uh, you can text questions in. You can text them to my I, They come to my phone. You're certainly happy to welcome to uh, raise your hand and ask questions. Um, questions are more than welcome, and we engage with those after our sermon before we move on with the service. So, what we're going to do is I'm going to read our passage for us, and then we will start looking at this together. This is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Now, there were some present at that very time, now, just to pause for a second. Jesus is in the middle of all of these kind of contentious uh, conversations with folks, um, uh, critiquing the ways in which the religious uh, authorities at the time were misleading people. So there's a bit of a contentious conversation. It's already a charged group context. So in the middle of that, at that very time, um, there were some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit from on this tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it why should it it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, then it should bear fruit next year. Well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray and ask for God's help. I understand these passages are a bit confusing. God, as we look at these two sections and ask what does it mean, um, what is Jesus getting at here, we pray that we would have a sober reflection on our own lives in your presence with us, in your mercy that calls us to be renewed in Jesus. So we ask that we would taste a sense of his goodness for us this morning. So in his name we pray. Amen. Um, this passage, I can uh, imagine the, the general sense that we can pa- get as we look at it is about repentance, right? Jesus is effectively calling people to repentance. What is that? I mean, I just want to ask... Um, Truly, get your thoughts. When you hear the word repentance, like what comes to mind? Anybody? Right? Yes. That's a great picture. Yeah. Yeah, so just in case you didn't hear Melanie was saying it, the picture is repentance means to turn, 
right? Anybody else have any other kind of either connotations or pictures that come to mind when you think of the word repentance? Anybody have kind of like that, like doom and gloom, like you better repent or burn type stuff going on? I mean, I don't know if that's in your head or not, but <laughs> uh, I just, I say that because, I mean, certainly some of us might have that as our background, but also there's like, you know, people on the news that have that as their message. Anybody, and before I move on, anybody else, any thoughts on pictures or ideas about repentance? So that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, unless the uh, repent and burn stuff. But we, we can't help but sense in this picture, there's a bit of like, it's not just kind of like, hey, you got to Google, redirect me in life. Like there's a little bit of some, something more going on here uh, that Jesus is getting at. Um, and these stories about people dying and who's responsible and God's judgment certainly can feel like they have a bit of a shock value. Um, but I think within these passages here, Jesus is issuing an invitation to a deeper sense of humanity, of what it means to be human and following him. And in a certain sense, Jesus, he, you know, you have like these like three rails that you don't touch, taxes, religion, and government, or what is it like taxes and or religion and government for sure. But he, he touches all three of those rails in these parables or these stories in ways that we might not pick up on because we're 2,000 years removed from the daily newspaper of their time. But Jesus gets into that and flips the story so that we experience, where there's an experience of, of being invited to see God's mercy, his delay in judgment, and the invitation to become new and whole in Jesus. So as we work through this passage, we're going to kind of talk through some of the details that are uh, behind this, uh, these stories. And I think as we work through this, we're going to see this main point. God delays his judgment to lead us into a deeper repentance in Jesus. I think that's uh, around the center of what this passage is orbiting around, a deeper repentance in Jesus. But it's not like a scolding off. It's an invitation for us to experience more deeply what it means to be human. So... We're just going to have two points this morning. We're going to basically go paragraph, each paragraph on its own. So the first paragraph, verses 1 to 5, I just want to put under this heading of repenting into a new way to be human. I want to read it for us, and then we're going to start kind of commenting on it. Now, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were any worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, I think when we read this, we tend to think like, okay, this is Galileans, like just kind of random people. And Pilate, well, you know, we know at the end of the book, Pilate's the one who kills Jesus. And that's kind of our reference point. We have to remember that at, at this time, these, uh, these people and Pilate's name would have been synonymous with um, some pretty politically charged uh, categories. Now, when I say politics for them, politics and religion were hand in hand. So 
they, they're kind of hard to separate out in terms of like, well, were you just, you know, were you politically motivated for this thing or were you religiously motivated? Yes. But behind this, Pilate is notorious in the ancient world for being a terrible person. So I, I have to look at my notes here to remember to read these correctly. Pilate was notorious for atrocities against the Jews specifically. So, for example, three examples. He butchered 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem um, when they objected to his off, uh, to him offering sacrifices. So 6,000. He slaughtered 3,000 protesters in Jerusalem by Herod Achelaus during the Passover, right? So this would be like not just any sort of like atrocity, but this would be like the national high point, like July 4th for them type thing. Like this is a huge moment in their national identity. Kills them. 3,000. And then he massacred their, uh, and then there was a massacre ordered by Pilate of armed Samaritans who gathered to view the sacred vessels of Moses um, that Moses was reported to have buried in Mount Gerizim. Right, so, so you have just that political background. Like, here is Pilate, who is a very bad dude towards the Jews. And so when they say, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans? Right, you have just kind of the general sense of like, did you hear about these other people that Pilate has uh, killed, but also remember Jesus is from Galilee, so there is almost a sense of kind of like, did you hear about your homeboys who got killed by the big bad wolf, right? So th this is not just any sense of like random people. We're beginning to kind of get a sense of like, there's a charged dynamic to this. And what's interesting here, so he says they say this. Jesus, you hear about the ones that uh, Pilate did this thing to? And there's no historical record beyond the Gospels' accounts that record this. It could have just been that it was like it happened, and it was of the 20 things that Herod did that were terrible, Five, the top five got recorded in history, and then the rest below that just kind of like didn't make the cut. So who knows what the specifics of this are. It could have been they were going to temple to offer sacrifices. It could have been that they were political opponents to him protesting. You, we, we have enough protests in our cultural climate these days. You can imagine there's various iterations of what this could look like. And Jesus says, and this is a fascinating part. This is, again, where you see Jesus. He weaves this story in a way that's really fascinating. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than, than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You can imagine for Jews who were talking to Jesus, who is by all accounts the Messiah arising. He is on his way to Jerusalem. They all kind of get the picture of what's going on. Here is our nation's savior. Did you hear about your homeboys from your hometown who got slaughtered by that guy you're going to Jerusalem and you will ultimately destroy him? Did you hear about that? Jesus doesn't say, I heard about those heroes. He doesn't say, I heard about those victims. He doesn't say anything that actually condones anything of what they did, positive or negative. He shocks them by saying, yeah, I heard about how those sinners died. Sinners just like everybody else. 
you need to face up to the reality that you will die. I mean, that's effectively what Jesus says. Which is like, you can imagine the political charge of the situation. This is not what you would expect. It's not what you expect a presidential candidate to say on his way to the debate stage or anything like that. Much less is it what you would expect from the Messiah who is here to save his people. Then Jesus kind of like, doesn't just kind of disappoint them, but he twists the knife, so to speak. Verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Right? I think there's a certain sense in which Jesus is playing with these dice that people will have this say something along the lines of like, yeah, we know we're all sinners, but those people who died in that terrible way, they were worse sinners. I mean, this is all through, if you read the book of Job, this is one of the main motifs, uh, main pictures in Job that happens where Job's friends kind of say like, well, Job, you're suffering in all these ways. I don't know what it is, but you want to confess something because there's something here that God's after. And Jesus is effectively saying, do you think that these people who suffered in this atrocious way by this disa- you know, workplace disaster, right, that were they worse sinners than the rest? But again, behind this picture, I think, is probably another situation involving Pilate. Pilate had taken gold from the Jerusalem temple to pay for the aqueducts to be, pay- to be put up through Jerusalem. So, again, this is mildly speculation, but this comes up in the commentaries. It seems that when Jesus is saying, when they, these 18 workers who died by this tower in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem area, he's likely making reference to another thing that Pilate did. A Pilate paid another atrocity. He took our gold to pay for this Roman road, you know, aqueduct to go through Jerusalem. An aqueduct is an ancient water form. They have water lifted up basically in trenches above the ground, that type of thing. And that here, this thing that Pilate did that then fell, something happened and killed 18 innocent workers. And again, Jesus doesn't say these innocent workers or these heroes or these whatever. He's not saying that it doesn't matter. That's a conversation, how you understand those moments of oppression and people dying by it, different. He's going after, I think, a very critical moment for the Jews in this situation. Right? They have pinpointed things that stir up this nationalistic fervor for them. We are the people of God. We are God's chosen nation. We are the ones that are supposed to bring order and justice to the world. All the nations are supposed to come to us. And yet here we are under the boot of Roman oppression, and we are going to give them what they deserve, and then we're going to reestablish God's kingdom on earth. It was, it was so baked in to their national identity, their, their Israel identity, their identity as being religious people, that they had kind of calcified, they had hardened around these hard edges of us versus them. Those people are going to get what they deserve. We're God's people, and we're getting, we're getting God's kingdom here on earth. 
And it's going to be by violence, man, because we're done with this. They had hardened around this. And I think a part of what Jesus is calling them to repentance about. N.T. Wright comments, he says effectively that Jesus, when he calls Israel to repent, he calls them to abandon their revolutionary zeal. Effectively, Jesus is calling them to repent of being Israel the way that they've been Israel. He's calling them to repent of this hard center of their core identity of what it, they think it means to be God's people. You can imagine this is really hard to get your head around. Okay, I thought that we were doing God's thing, God's way for God's purposes. And you're telling us to uh, repent of this core thing that we were doing for God? And Jesus is putting his finger, I think, on this nationalistic zeal, this fervor of we are the ones. They're going to get it. That's hard to see, to be honest. If we were to put ourselves in their, their shoes, I, I don't think that it's very hard to take our current contemporary situation of Christian nationalism and all the different iterations of political engagement and throw those back 2,000 years. Where would you be? I, I can't say. But Jesus is going after the jaguar of some very deep-rooted issues that they had that we have and calling them and calling us not merely to repentance, right? Israel had lost their way, but like all good ways of losing your way, they lost it for the right reasons. <laughs> right? We're trying to be God's people for God's purposes. And they misunderstood and kind of misaligned numerous things. And then it becomes more confusing to kind of unpack because now you're like, using religious language to understand things that you are committed to religiously that you need to repent of, it's hard. Am I making sense, guys? Are this tracking or is it, am I losing? We're good? I got a few thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm making sense. All right. I'm just making sure. I feel like this is kind of hard to kind of get at. But Jesus is effectively calling them to a fundamental death in their identity. Right? They have been oppressed, and their oppressor will get what's coming to them. They're being called to repentance, to give up this inner commitment, to be in submission to God's way of life. So, what are these categories for us? What are they? I, I don't know. I will say they are likely, under the surface, prejudices, impulses, agendas. Is there something going on over there? Oh, was it? Sorry, I thought it was somebody on the wall. I can't tell. <laughs> they are like, what are these categories for us? These are prejudices, impulses, agendas, orientations that just make sense are just the way we do things or we don't evaluate. I will say personal change, organizational change, national change, there's no just solution in most cases. 
how do you, if you just think about your own personal life, like how do you change? If I just said, well, why don't you just fill in the blank, stop doing X, Y, Z. Okay. <laughs> you talk about like organizationally, how do you correct and make changes? Oh, well, just put out a flyer. How do you just make national change? You think about like the nation of Israel here in the story, or you think about us. Oh, well, we solved the, the issue with folks who are experiencing homelessness by just doing fill in the blank, or we just figure out the solution for, you know, border patrol and blah, blah, blah. And you just do. It's like, that's not how people change. The way people change is a slow, to use Melanie's language earlier, a slow turn back towards a vision of humanity. I want to put up this quote from C.S. Lewis because I think this captures a little bit of what we're talking about here. Repentance is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he, would, he could let you off of if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back is like. That last phrase, it is repentance is simply a description of what going back is like. God is calling Israel back to who they were supposed to be. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. For us, when we, we engage with categories of what does meaningful repentance look like? Meaningful repentance is look, looks like turning back towards being the human that God has made you to be. That's that repentance is what Jesus has come to facilitate. That's what Jesus has come to make happen for us. So we're not like earning our way back to God or anything like that. That turning, I think we'll see this a little bit more clearly in the second paragraph that we're going to look at. But that turning back to that humanity that we're framing this as, that's what Jesus is all about. So when he says, right, he says it twice, right? But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Right? The path that we often find ourselves on is a path towards death. And Jesus is not trying to give us a political flyer to figure out that. He's calling us, I want you to live. I want you to flourish. I want you to be alive and whole and new and fresh. I want you to be fully human in me. So that, that churning, it's often just walking our way back into being who we were made to be. That's what Jesus is calling us to in repentance. So let's look at the second paragraph, because I think we'll fill out the, the picture here a little bit more to see God's mercy in this picture. Verses nine, 6 to 9, repenting on a path paved by mercy. And he told this parable. So this is just after Jesus has done all this political stuff, right? A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he sent, said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it, be used, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and, and put in manure then it should bear bear fruit next week. If it should wear, bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, just a couple kind of technical things here. 
fig trees um, take up a lot of nutrients from the ground around them. Like that's just kind of a technical thing about the plant itself, right? Another element here is that in Jewish custom, when you planted a fig tree, you wouldn't take the fruit for the first few years. Like that was largely just kind of like to help it grow and get healthy. And then the fourth year was largely considered this is for the temple. So you take that and give it as a sacrificial offering to the Lord. And then the next fifth year, that's when you can start actually taking figs from it for yourself. Like th those are all technical things. I'm not sure how that fits into this picture. Maybe it fills in the three-year part. I don't know. But I think also here we have to remember, Jesus has said in chapter 9 he's going to Jerusalem. Here we've just had the paragraph before all of these statements about Jerusalem politics. So when we get to chapter verse 6 here, he says, A man had a fig tree. I don't think this is just an incidental tree. A fig tree is the only tree that's named in the Garden of Eden. A fig, a fig tree is what is used. Um, a vineyard is what is used in the Old Testament for God's people. He planted them as a, as a, uh, as a vineyard, takes a plant out of one vineyard and takes it to another. And then in uh, Jeremiah, I can give you the, the addresses on these references, but Judah and Jerusalem are both, both referred to as a fig tree. So I think there's more than just a guy had a fig tree as much as he had a pear tree. This is a Jesus picking up on the political image here and saying, okay, we're talking about Jerusalem. Let me tell you about a story about Jerusalem. Says his pear. Basically, my people are not being who I planted them to be, but I'll have mercy for a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more mercy. You know, so the, the parable basically is like this tree's not doing what it's supposed to do. I mean, I'm sure if any of us have been around, you know what that's like. I planted this plant and it's not doing what it's supposed to do. The parable the emphasis is on the delay of getting rid of the, par the, the tree to give it more time to produce what it's supposed to do. And in the parable, at least my eyes are drawn to verse 8. Sir, he answered him, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Now, I'm not saying that God's putting manure in your life. Uh, you can fill in the phrase that you want to use for that. Manure is used in plant and gardening just as a way of fertilizing, right? I'm trying to give space. I want to do the things that are going to help promote health and life in production in this plant's plant, right? I think it's not hard to make the connection here. The very repentance that Jesus is calling them to in the first paragraph and the repentance that he's kind of filling out the picture here is basically saying, God is invested in helping you repent and find life and grow in him. Like that's the picture that Jesus is filling out here, right? You are not left to go and repent, figure out your problems, fix them, and then come back to God. God is actually there proactively giving you the mercy and grace so that you can then have the eyes to see and heart to open and repent and turn. Like that's the, the fuller picture here is every aspect of what God's calling you to in repentance and renewal is just completely baked in grace. 
it's similar to Romans 2. This is going to sound familiar, I imagine. If we can go over to uh, Romans 2. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's a very similar idea here. And effectively, it's in a context of Romans 2, where Paul is calling out the hypocrisy of religious people who condemn other people for being sinners and don't do the work of repentance in their own lives. Here we have a similar picture in Luke 13. These are often the moments where we are wrestling with there's something going on internally that I don't understand. There's some aspect in which I feel I'm not quite getting what it means to be alive in Jesus. And I need God's help. And the picture here is just quite simply, God's already there helping you. That framing of it of like, I don't understand what's going on, but I know that something's not in alignment with who God is. That is in of itself God's work in your life. So can we put back up that C.S. Lewis quote? Repentance is not something God demands of you before he will take you back. Right? God's not saying in this story, that hard work of change in your life, you better do that before you come to church or, you know, whatever the religious goal of your life is. Repentance is not something God demands of you before you take your, before he will take you back in which he will, he could let you off of if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back is like, which is to say God is there before you need the repentance. God is there in the, the act of repentance God is there as you make the steps of repentance back to who you were designed to be in Jesus. And before we move on, I just want to remind us that this happens as Jesus has said, I am going to Jerusalem. These politically charged moments, these parables, these stories are all things about Jerusalem. And when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, He sees you and me for all that we are. All the ways in which death has been a cancer in our lives. All the ways in which we we need repentance and fail to see it. All the ways in which we have faltering repentance and don't complete it. All the ways in which we are just a complete wreck. And he takes those things, buries them in his heart, and takes on the cross. For he dies so that these ways that death and sin have been a cancer in our lives lose their power. So that then in his death, they die. The ways in which we need repentance, we're not trying to bring them to mind so that we can actually like, hey God, remember this, I need your help. God preemptively says, I know. He puts them to death in the death of Christ. And then when Jesus rises from the grave, He takes all those areas of sin and death, areas where we need repentance, and he shoots them through with this resurrection power and life. So that 
repentance becomes less of an invitation for you to feel bad about who you are and more of an invitation into this resurrection life that rolls back the power of death and sin so that you can become who God has made you to be in Jesus. I'm not saying that it's not painful. It is painful to see areas where we need repentance. But the invitation is not to pain. The invitation is to newness of life in Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we experience your nearness, I pray that you would help us to see whatever things or areas come to mind. I can't think of anything particular, but when we repent and as we repent, that we would experience a renewal of our humanity in Jesus, of what it means to be alive, and that we would see that he has died for our sin and death and is eager and already filling us with his life and newness. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.